This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All kinds of people can have personality cults and charisma. Influencers, movie stars, and democratic politicians like JFK or at the beginning Macron. But here's the difference. The charisma of all these people I've mentioned is they have something special, je ne sais quoi, but they make you feel like you could be their friend. They draw you to them. But that's where it stops. Authoritarian has all of that. But also, and this is crucial, he makes it clear that he's going to dominate you and that he is going to make you do his bidding. So it's not a passive charisma where you're just drawn to them and you can't get enough of them. They are doing things to you. And that's where the cult comes in. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. On today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation I had with Ruth Ben-Ghiat about her book, Strongmen, and the history of autocrats, and what we can learn from those who stood up to them. If you haven't yet listened to the first part of that conversation, you can find it on your podcast feed. It just dropped last Wednesday. You mentioned Orban, and I don't think we can let that name go by without noting Tucker Carlson going there recently uh, and the, you know, the Conservative Political Action Committee conference, CPAC, um, staging a major event there in Hungary. What do you make of this obsession on the right, the American political right, the Republican Party's obsession with Viktor Orban and Hungary and how, oh, they just seem to be doing everything right over there and he's got it figured out. And how should we be thinking about the rise of autocrats around the globe and the relationship between defending our democracy and the defense of democracy more broadly? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, um, I have two essays in my, uh, for Lucid that I wrote about this and actually broke the news of the uh, CPAC oh, wow. in the past. So Orban is popular for, I'll just say, two main reasons. One is the, the commonality with the obsession with demographics, with legislating who can be a family. That's why Mike Pence went over there. Mike Pence is not like Mr. World Traveler. Um, but he went there recently <laughs> to speak at the demographic summit. Uh, and he, so here's a good example as an answer to your question. In Budapest, he was able to feel free enough to wish out loud that abortion will soon, abortion rights will soon come to an end. So they feel that this is somebody who's made happen what they want to make happen. It's the same as when Trump is 
you know, waxing poetic about all the horrible, murderous dictators he loves. But the reason that they all gravitate to Budapest and Orban is too. First, Orban and his, you know, cronies are investing a huge amount for him to be like the hub of the new right. And in fact, Tucker Carlson went there, and as you know, this is quite notable, he spent a whole week there, right? But the occasion was a conference that was sponsored by this, like, college, collegium. And the purpose of this collegium is to train a new generation of far-right operatives. And you might remember Bannon was trying to do that with his stupid monastery in Italy, and then the Italians kicked him out. Yeah, it's not working for him. Yeah, (laughs) but Orban isn't going to be. Nobody's kicked out there because he's in charge and he rules by decree. So they're they're making a big charm offensive on their end to attract people to come. It's a huge thing that Mike Pence went there. But the reason that the GOP loves them is that he's he's not Putin. You don't hear about people being poisoned in Hungary. You don't hear about people falling out of windows and he seems so normal and you don't hear about violence. So we can all feel that there's not really an autocratic state going on. It all seems so friendly. And Ron Dreyer can say, Oh no, there were dissidents. There were critical voices at this conference, not really, you know, playing on the fact that people don't know that autocrats uh, Mussolini used to once in a while, trot out some kind of dissident. That's what you do. So Orban is like the mainstreamed autocrat, and there there is like violence and pressure. It's just that you don't really hear about it. So he's like the anti-Putin, even though he's totally allied with Putin. So there, all of that is going on with the Budapest GOP love fest. Wow. You mentioned the dissidents, and it almost sounds like they're used as a veneer of pluralism. Can you help us think through how authoritarians have been able to use veneers like that and and even elections to come to and maintain power? And how did something that has been a mark of open society become a way for authoritarians to take power? Yeah, this is, so one of the reasons um, I was one of the only people who didn't label Trump a fascist. Um, and the reason I didn't do that was I felt that today things work differently. And if we talk about, if we, if we talked about Trump as a fascist and this is fascism happening, it would uh, confuse people further. Meaning, you know, in classic dictatorships and still in North Korea and China, you shut down elections. You just don't have them at all. You could have like referenda, plebiscites, but they're not elections. 21st century, different playbook. You come to power through elections because there's still some coups, but it's less common. And you manipulate elections to stay there. And that's what Putin does. That's what Orban does. And that's what Trump's trying to do with, the, you know, really, we, we, are, we are living through a massive assault on the entire apparatus of election, the whole machinery, every from, you know, empowering thugs who are called poll workers, um, poll watchers to, you know, purging election officials, the whole thing. I'm sure you've talked about it on this podcast. Yeah. So that's going on. And that's because we're in the 21st century and that's what you do. So then you have people like Erdogan, who's totally extinguished freedom, 
who keeps elections going. And then he declares, you know, he's interviewed by CNN. He says, well, I'm not a dictator because we have the ballot box and the people show their free will, you know, and, and that's the populism stuff. I don't use the word populism because these guys are not populist. They're just, they're like real, real politique. There's nothing, it's a fake populism. Interesting. Um, okay. You know, they claim, yeah, they claim to be like anti-globalist for the people. And then they're all, they all, you have their, you know, illicit cash and offshore finance run by, they're the biggest global, Trump is the biggest globalist ever. His entire, his entire business model is about licensing his name and his brand globally. So I don't use those things that those, those terms very often, but the elections, uh, it's, it's a very diabolical thing, but they have, they have mastered it and they learn from each other. They really do. Um, and that's also part of the um, love affair of the GOP with Hungary. Mm. They're learning. Mm. So we, we have talked about this a lot on the podcast and I've sort of separated the assault on, on elections into two big buckets. And on the one side is what seems to be getting all of the attention and outrage. And I, I understand, which is, you know, access to the ballot in the first place and voting rights uh, and how hard it is or how easy it is to, yeah. to vote for some people. I understand that, but I actually think the far more uh, sinister uh, operation is what's going on on the back end of elections, which is this attempt to replace the nonpartisan election officials, basically who gets to count who voted, who gets to decide who won, and the, the machinery that is usually not seen or heard, uh, but quietly does its, does the job of facilitating um, uh elections with integrity, that's the part that really concerns me and, um, and, and doesn't seem to be getting enough, uh, enough of our attention in your conclusion. You write that when autocrats fall from power, they don't vanish, but they remain as traces within the body of their people. And so I wonder how, you know, with, with, with the security and integrity of elections as the backdrop, how should we expect to see the traces of Trump's administration play out in the United States. Um, and I also, I, I, I resist the impression that that leaves us, which is that it's fading because I don't think it's fading. I think it's rising. And I think you mm -hmm. know, January 6th, for example, was just the starting gun. And, um, and this assault on elections this coordinated subversive uh, attempt to, to basically change the outcome of elections, um, artificially is, is, uh, is one of the worst things that we have to worry about right now. Yeah. So for the, for the, I mean, Trump is gone, but not gone. And, um, you know, people who said, uh, you know, when I, I predicted that his cult would live on, um, you know, like in November and December. And it people, surely like, has. About? <laughs> well, because the whole, all the things we're talking about here is that if you approach Trump and the GOP with a framework of democracy, you will fall short. You will not understand anything. Like you will be like, how could this be? How could this be? How could they be believing him? But if you slot him and now them into 
an autocratic behavior, it all makes sense. And in fact, you can predict things like I have. I've predicted a ton of things. And so have some other people who study autocracies. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> um, we don't have a crystal ball. We just, it fits perfectly. But, it, but that goes back to the psychological block people have. They just they don't want they don't want to go there and they also don't understand authoritarianism perhaps and i'm not saying that in a condescending way it's it's just we've always had a version of democracy and so it's people thought well oh these juntas and coups they they just happen elsewhere they're not they're not things that happen here so um but i i also i do i think that people do not understand the scope and gravity of the assault on the elections uh, apparatus that's going on. They are being so thorough. And it's, it's part of a process that in authoritarian studies is called autocratic capture. <coughs> Excuse me. It's called autocratic capture, which is like when you capture the judiciary, meaning you purge or the civil service, and Trump did this a lot already. He, you know, he set up all this during four years by transforming the civil service. He made it a hostile work environment for people, including at the DOJ, who had to leave. And then you, you, you put in ideologues and zealots, and then you have your people there ready. And so when Bannon, a week or so ago, <clears throat> talked about he's got he wants 30,000 shock troops to be ready he meant governmental civil servant shock troops because when if they come back to power they're going to move very fast it'll be like germany after 1933 <clears throat> so they're setting what we're living through now is setting up a system which will be in their minds like hungary or turkey where Today you have elections, but you make sure the results are what you need to stay in power. Speaking of elections, um, earlier this week, uh, I think we we might have touched on this at the beginning. Um, there was a rally supporting Republican Virginia gubernatorial candidate uh, Glenn Youngkin. Yeah, and um, his supporters <laughs> at this event pledged allegiance to a flag that was carried during the insurrection on January 6th. Mm -hmm. And Youngkin didn't attend the rally, but Donald Trump did call into the event uh, to voice support for Youngkin in the gubernatorial race. And I wonder how you think about that day as a touchstone for the emerging American strongmen and, and their followers. And should we expect to see more elected officials and candidates call back to that event Almost as um, as you know, you mentioned this mythological event, right? Um, and do you think we're only going to see more of that? Yes, we're. This is the beginning, and and Trump said this is, in fact, on in his little incitement speech at the rally and other times around that date. He said this is just the beginning, and he meant it. It's the beginning, and what's so interesting is that. This was a coup that failed, so because he didn't get to stay in power, but it was accepted. Because sometimes when a coup fa fails, it it doesn't. It, it it's just sometimes it's a learning operation, but it doesn't. Its culture doesn't spread. 
this, it becomes, so Trump is, and here I am going to use the F word. He, he has, he's always been building. He always said that it was a movement and it's a fascistic style movement. And he uh, did everything that the fascists would do. He gave people, uh, so you had the black shirts, he gave them, he's a marketer. And, and again, Hitler and Mussolini were very skilled media performers and thinkers, um, micromanagers, just like Trump. So you had the black shirt, so you could have a uniform and show to people your tribal affiliation. And so he gave them the MAGA hat. And so Trump understands the power of visuals and symbols and slogans, just like those guys did. And so January 6th is the foundation of this new um, sacred community, this new national community. And in fact, he called recently in a speech, Biden's, uh, you know, November 2020, he called it the insurrection because Biden, that was the date that Biden illegitimately occupied the office. He only did that in one speech, but you're going to see more of that. So I predict you're going to see more of that. Um, Ashley Babbitt, very important because just like the early fascists, uh, bef- you know, in the very early 20s before Mussolini uh, cons- had the dictatorship, every time a fascist got killed, they would have a public commemoration of these people as martyrs. So it's a, it's a, it's a substitute religion. And that's where the cult stuff comes in. And that's why, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book called A Greater Nation, where the leader is uh, often acclaimed as uh, the only one who can lead the, the, the nation to greatness, like make, make it great again. Isn't it now MAGA 2? It's like make it great again, again. They started a new super Because they pack. can't yeah. give that up. Yeah, yeah. Make America yeah, great again, again. Yeah, they can't give that yeah. up. yeah. And the, and the other part is that the leader is not only uh, omnipot- omnipotent, but he's also touched by the divine. And so on cue, you have Orthodox Jews, you have evangelicals who come and say, yes, we worship at the cult of Trump. So it becomes this alternate religion. And January 6th, you're going to see, is like the, the, the found, a founding date. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, in, in past regimes, uh, you, you had like, you know, the March on Rome, which was Mussolini's version of like a, a soft coup. Um, it became a national holiday. Um, because as so I, I unfortunately, I see all the, this happening. Well, it could happen, but w- I see all of this uh, use of symbols and ideology to build a new culture, whether or not, whether it's going to be successful, we don't know, but this will go on. But it certainly fits into the pattern. It's totally 100%. I, no. I'm sorry to say that. I yeah, wish, it, no, I, wish uh, it were, I could say it doesn't fit and it's not so bad, but it does fit. We talked about the, the Alabama rally that he had in a field several weeks ago in between Birmingham and Huntsville and Alabama in the middle of nowhere. And I, um, 
I forced myself to sit through the entire, you know, two hour affair and I watched Mm -hmm. every single speaker. I watched the entire thing because I had to understand 30,000 people showed up in the middle of nowhere, um, in a field for this event. And, uh, you know, the reason I watched it in the first place was because I, you know, I was a political operative for 18 years and I can't imagine any U.S. politician in the first year of a four-year presidential cycle in America getting 30,000 people to show up anywhere. And so that sort of bit of trivia was curiosity was why I watched it. But, um, but I was increasingly deeply alarmed uh, as it went on until it culminated at the very end of his speech with something that you know, I noted at the time could only have been written by a master propagandist. And he actually read it like verbatim from the teleprompter. It wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't off the cuff at that point. He was sort of glued to the words and was reading them, delivering them as they were intended. And it was, it was, um, what I noted, uh, at, at the time was, this is a campaign rally that would normally end, you know, everything's bad. The world's going to hell and, you know, I alone can fix it. And so your, your, your marching orders are to vote for me, right? Every, all this bad stuff is going to happen unless you get out and vote for me on Tuesday, right? Except there's no election and he's not asking for your vote. And the crowd is left hanging with this pent up anger and rage waiting for an order and mm-hmm. and he ends with some you know very rhythmic litany of we will not relent we will not give up we will not you know um uh i wonder <laughs> i wonder how you see an event like that fitting into the pattern that we've been discussing and and you know all I could say at the time was, man, these have taken a very, very dark turn and it feels very dangerous to me. And, and I, I don't know what to make up. Like if you had to predict the next data point in that series, what would it look like? And what should we, what should we be watching for? You said it very well that he, le- that there's no immediate um, action meaning legislative action. There's no election next week or next month. And, you know, well, they were, so they have a problem because they, these, these um, movements that crest on anger and frustration and hatred, um, it's hard to keep people mobilized for so long. Like 2024 is an eternity away. They can't wait that long. Now, one trick they have, and here's Bannon, who's also a master propagandist who has studied extensively. He he loves Mussolini. He loves Triumph for the Will, and he knows what he's doing. And he's made like a dozen films. He's been, the whole thing is not just him. Oh, Trump's coming back August 13th. It's like the return of Jesus. You know, Trump's coming back this date. And then, like recently, I saw on his uh, war room, he said, oh, it could be, you know, well before 2022. And so, like, we're in October 2021. So, okay. So they have to keep people stoked. And they have to keep these deluded people going. 
Um, but I found very interesting in relation to this that there's been some noise on Twitter about the the new the, the increased threat in the threatening tone in mess in fundraising messages. Mm-hmm. I saw that, that too. The Trump and they're they're the one that uh, he he said that you're a traitor. Yeah. If you don't, and yeah. this is like so totally authoritarian because they despise the people yeah. who, who vote for them. He hates all those people. He thinks there's total dupes, you know? So, so they're, they're increasing the uh, delusion, like, you know, he's going to come back then, he's going to come back then, but they're also increasing the threat. So that's interesting to me. So it's both the charisma he's going to do more and more rallies so that like positive part where oh i love him i love him so much but they're also going to increase the intimidation because strong men it's seduction and intimidation together but i don't know how they're gonna because even the midterms are really long far away and the other fallacy with that and i'm actually this this thought just came to mind right now because i've said this before oh the midterms but we're thinking in terms of democracy when we talk about elections, right? So it's just registering, even with me at a new level, well, wait, now these people are not interested in the election cycle right now. It's too far away. How are they going to maintain all of that momentum for so long? Something has to happen. And so when you said he leaves them with pent up, um, We'll start to see more violence. We'll start to see more uh, state houses and, you know, again, invaded. And there'll be more things like that because people have to have a release. Um, and, and honestly, the ultimate playbook is what happened in Chile before the coup. And we don't have to have a coup nowadays. They are trying to discredit Biden's administration every which way, but the real right right wing authoritarian playbook is to is to depict democracy as incompetent, chaotic, full of looters, full of disasters um, and failing, and so you need and and full of violence, rioters in the streets, etc. So you need an authoritarian takeover to restore order couched as so, a restoration of democracy because the 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 the, the, sad, the sad irony is that both parties are now using very similar rhetoric about democracy right we have to save democracy and and one side actually believes in democratic norms institutions ideals and the other one actually doesn't but they're using the same language and it and it and people buy it. Yeah. And in fact, the, earlier I, I I mentioned that sad example of Chile, where the Christian Democrats, yeah. who were you know committed to democracy, thought that Pinochet would would actually give back you know power <laughs> to democracy. That's because even that coup, the junta, couched their action as saving democracy. It's always say coups are always about saving democracy. Yeah. Um, the only ones who were more honest were the fascists, and of course, the also communists back in in that period yeah. uh, of the the twenties and thirties. D- they were very very adamant that democracy was not going to be saved. 
Um, They didn't want to save democracy. Nowadays, because you have to keep elections going, you have to use this this, um, idea of democracy. Right. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, you and I talked about when we were uh, exchanging DMs on Twitter is um, this, this problem of when we talk about um, this pattern, um, democracy, authoritarianism, the rise of autocrats, when we talk about these things, um, it can be inaccessible to a lot of people. And sometimes it feels like we're using high-minded concepts and, and words to describe something that is actually an existential threat to our way of life, to everybody's way of life. And I just, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, and how, how we can bring the reality of this threat of the moment that we're living in, um, down to a level where most people can begin to grasp just how serious it is. And, um, and, and piggybacking on that, what, what are the things that people, you know, have been able to do over the last century to push back on autocratic leaders and what can, and should we be doing now, um, to, to resist this rise of American strongmen? Yeah, that's, that's like the heart of the question. And I think about this a lot and sometimes discuss this with other people who are Pub, doing the type of public work I am because we ha- we have a it's a dilemma for us mm-hmm. because we're trying to warn of what's happening as it's happening. We also can make projections which have unfortunately been accurate. So all of that is in the service of trying to get people to understand the threat we face. Like uh, this morning, on I did a television program on MSNBC, and on Bannon refusing to respond to subpoenas, and I started by saying, "Look, if you're raised in a democracy, it may be hard to get your mind into how lawless these people are, and that he's not going to respond to the subpoena because that would mean he's accepting the legitimacy of a democracy, and and he's not." He wants to take it down. So that's an example of a very dire thing to say. So the problem is you you need to warn people, but human psychology being what it is, people can get um, so depressed or scared that it becomes uh, counterproductive because then they check out. They just can't deal with it. And so it's very important to warn, but also provide action items yeah. and, and hope. So that's why I, in the book, it was really important. It was also therapeutic after writing about all the awful things to get to the resistance chapter and the, and the chapter of how they fall. Yeah. So nonviolent protest, uh, in, including uh, artists and all, all, all realms of life, humorists, has been really important and impactful. Um, and we saw that with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, and before that, the Women's March, which translated directly into new candidates coming in the midterms. Mm-hmm. 
who are reshaping the Democratic Party. So there's real world impact for these things. But there is, so there's this tension if you do this work between sensitizing people, but not leading them to feel um, it's hopeless. And so I actually... I don't, there are people uh, on, on social media now who do the same kind of work as me who are saying, look, stop. Because I, I, I say that we, uh, if you want to do something, you could work for voter registration, voter mobilization. We will need a historic outpouring of votes to counteract all the tricks. Yeah. There are other people who say that's hopeless. You can't vote your way out of voter suppression. But that's an example of, Mm. That's too defeatist. That's, yeah. Yeah. And you can't say that. I mean, I don't mean you can't say it literally, but yeah. it's not helpful to say that. Right. Because we, people thought that Trump might win and then he was defeated. Yeah. And people also thought that the election would be full of violence and there wasn't any violence. So the, the history of these, of politics is also a history of perceptions. And we're, we're being, We've had four or five years of psychological warfare meant to convince us that it's futile. What is this? Resistance is futile. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, the, that's right. Yeah. And and we're really being hammered with that. And so, I see. Uh, I'm starting to focus in, in the people I interview. I I interviewed uh, this week in my newsletter Amanda Littman, the head of Run for Something. Mm-hmm. Um, which nurtures the next generation of democratic progressive candidates, yeah. uh, you know, candidates. Yeah. So that, so, so letting people know about these things, that there are things you can do and there are things that have historically been successful is really important. It also um, goes to my friend, Catherine Sanderson's point. She's the, uh, chair of psychology at Amherst, um, that, that moral rebels only surface when they believe their actions will have a meaningful impact. And, yeah. and that's a really crucial ingredient here. Um, okay. I have one last question for you, um, more personal, which is, you know, uh, um, with the amount of time and, uh, and, and energy it takes to study all of this awful stuff <laughs> through, through history. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the, the dark places you have to go mentally to to, to really understand these people, how they work, how they think, how these, how these atrocities, you know, take place and the events that give rise to them. What do you, what do you, what do you do to, um, to, 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 to make it through all of that, to, to, to keep yourself sane. How do you, how has that impacted you? Um, and not just the studies, but also looking around and being right about the things you predicted and, and, you know, uh, what, and I, I, honestly, how do you, how do you wake up every day and not think I got to get out of here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, well, I, I don't want to get out of here because I feel it's just really important to, to, to help people understand. Um, I'm doing a lot more TV now, and I'm very happy about that because it's a very efficient way to, to reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and often people will tell me that it, 
although I say dire things, it makes them, it's comforting to hear it. Mm. And I try and have a very humanistic um, demeanor because it's it's out of love for, I'm a first generation American, my parents are immigrants, and it's out of love for this country um, that leads me to do this work. Um, so yes, it, it's frustrating to be right, but uh, that's, you, you don't wanna have your ego in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you want to, you'd rather be wrong. Um, so, and in terms of the, the, um, the writing of the book was tough and be what I mentioned at the beginning where we're in this period of trying to whitewash, um, authoritarian history with the t-shirts of Pinochet did nothing wrong. That's why I decided to include, um, descriptions of torture and, you know, also sexual violence. And that was very hard to write about. For me and in part i tried to balance it with things about you know the love of families i'm a mother um the love of mothers for their kids you can try and keep these bonds alive even when you go into exile so i tried to focus on those things um but i also did uh, a lot of yoga <laughs> while i was writing I uh, listened to electronica. I'm partial to electronica really loudly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like. I would have these writing marathons when I had to write the tough stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, drink a glass of wine or two, put really banging electronica on, and get through it. Um, and I, love it. I, so I did that. And then the last thing. Um, when I was writing the resistance I chapter, um, I had I had pictures of some of the heroes, and I kind of kept mm. them there to look at them, because I felt that I was speaking on behalf of the victims, and I was educating the public about the heroes that maybe they didn't know about mm. that we can think about today. I love that. Uh, I would love to join you for a couple of glasses of wine and some, some electronica (laughs) (laughs) at some point. Um, Ruth Ben Giat, before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet and how can they support you? I'm uh, at, at Ruth Ben Giat on Twitter and uh, I have a website, www.ruthbengiat.com where you can find there. You can find a, a link to sign up for my newsletter. It's free, uh, although you could become a paying subscriber, but it's all, uh, the theme is threats against democracy, uh, sprinkled in with self-care, because that's important for us to have the endurance. And uh, you can find all my interviews there too. Lovely. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.